1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to turn there, if you have a Bible or a digital Bible. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 13. And Marianne, will you come and read it to us as well? 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 13. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gift of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Thank you so much. For those of you who don't know me, I'm, my name's Daniel. I'm one of the leaders here. And uh, it's a joy to be speaking to you from Corinthians. Um, hopefully you got one of these on the way in. If you didn't, I'm sure someone could, John is going to distribute them freely. So put your hand up if you'd like to get one. It's, obviously this isn't the be all and end all, but it is kind of helping you maybe with my following my thinking as we go through. And it's also got an extra four verses at the beginning, which we will touch on. Um, Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come to your word prayerfully tonight and obediently. Lord, hungering and thirsting for your nourishing truth. Thank you that we say with David, your word is perfect. Your word is honey to my lips. Lord, your word is refreshing. Your word is a light to my path. Lord, your word is living and active. Your word is perfect, inspired by you. All of it, from beginning to end. And we come under your word, Lord God. We come as those who are seeking to lean on your greater wisdom as our creator as the architect of the church. We look to you. I pray that you'd give us revelation. Lord, as Paul prayed so many times for his hearers, that they would have a revelation of your great love. I pray for us, Lord, that we would have a revelation of your great love. Lord, I dare to believe that you can say through me things that are uh, wise and helpful and profound because it's your word. Amen. Amen. 
So I just want to start by thanking you for coming. Um, I really mean that. I really mean that. As I look out on many smiling faces, um, many of whom I've known for a very long time, some I'm beginning to get to know more and more. It's so important that you're here. It's so good that you're here. And when you haven't been here, you've been missed, truly and deeply. For those on Zoom who can't be here physically but are here online, you know, we miss you. And we're glad that you can uh, be with us in this way, but we long to be together with you. Let me read this from Hebrews 10 before we get into Corinthians. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold fast. Hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So easy to waver, isn't it? So easy just to press snooze, to stay in bed, to not turn up, to uh, not say your piece, to... Uh, just leave something unsaid to not reach out and pray for someone. It's so easy just not to take that opportunity to waver in your mind about it. For he who promised is faithful. Even when I'm faithless, God is faithful to me. And let us consider, let us think about, let us cogitate on, let us calculate how to stir up one another to love and good works. I mean, this, today I've had so many interactions with people before the service. Uh, texting Claire, you know, we're doing a handout, can you make sure people get it? She's always feeding back, you know, last time there weren't enough encouraging me to make sure that there's enough and that they're going to get in the right hands. I had a quick conversation with Jess Douglas about, you know, she's a psychologist here amongst us, about abuse in the church, and we're going to do a talk in a couple of weeks to the leaders, and just wanted to hear her wisdom. She's going to review a few things for me. Um, let's pick on Mark. Mark's doing a double shift today. He's behind the PA desk. This morning you were doing teas and coffees, Mark. I take my hat off to you. You are one of many doing double shifts today. Um, just, you, you know, you bump into people in the corridor who are delivering uh, shoeboxes for the, for the Christmas appeal. There's, there's many tens out there in the foyer, and there's, and there's, you know, all of these cages with all of these um, boxes in here, and that's for the 60-odd uh, hampers that are going to be given away this Christmas. People just in every corner of this building uh, beavering away, getting on with something. The youth have been away for the weekend. They've had a residential. Anna was speaking to them about spiritual warfare yesterday. These little interactions, so energizing, so positive, so encouraging. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then it says this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So you would expect that the contrast to that, the contrast to meeting together, is not meeting together, right? So don't neglect to meet together, but do meet together. That's what you'd expect that sentence to say, but it doesn't say that. It says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So actually, 
the contrast to not meeting is more than meeting, isn't it? It's meeting and encouraging one another. It's not filling the pews. Sometimes I know all we can do is turn up. And that's when you need your brothers and sisters to throw their arms around you and to press into a verse like this, to encourage you and to encourage one another. And all the less as you become mature in Christ. You know, really, you start needing each other, but as you mature, you stop needing each other. And you get to the point, actually, where you don't need to be part of a church community at all, and that's perfection. No, that's not at all the heart, is it? Meet together, encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching, all the more as the sanctifying work of God amongst you and amongst us continues. It's like the more mature we are, the closer we get, the more we support one another. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming. You are a chosen race. That's how Peter describes the church. This isn't a club, this isn't a society, this isn't a football match, this isn't a theater, this isn't a gig, this isn't you in passive mode watching me perform. This is the people of God who he describes as Peter, through Peter as a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You know, Dan was encouraging us as we come to worship that perhaps one or two will have a contribution because we are a priesthood. I don't mediate between you and God. I am a fellow priest with you. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I just want to encourage you about what's happening here tonight. What's happening here tonight is precious. We're a people for his own possession. David, you're here because Jesus died for you and made you part of this community, this kingdom-breaking-in community. You know, this week we had the ID students uh, spread out all across the UK during their gap year, and they were gathered here for a week of training with Matt Fell this week. And I commend this church because 60 or more students were housed by people in this church and in the Ely Church. 60 people were fed breakfast, lunch, and dinner by people in this church, and not just pot noodles. I mean, I came in for as many meals as I could possibly manage, <laughs> and uh, you know, benefited from some absolutely delicious hot meals, cakes, puddings, and so forth. Some sins go before a man, you know. Um, so I, I commend you for that. But the reason I mention it is because one of those ID students, you know, young lady in her early 20s, recently come to faith, but obviously a real student of the word, uh, took me aside and was asking me some questions. One of her questions was from um, 
a little dusty corner of the Bible. I think we should get into some of these dusty corners of the Bible. But this dusty corner of the Bible in Matthew, where it talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it mentions that at that moment, some of the graves opened and saints were raised to life and actually went into Jerusalem. So she was telling me, you know, what is this all about? And I had to um, tell her, I don't know. I'll go and have a look at that, hit some commentaries and... um, I found it really stimulating. No one quite knows exactly what that's about. And forgive me if you do know, you can tell me. But, but the consensus seems to be that there's something of a difference between that resurrection and previous resurrections like Lazarus. So, you know, commentators would say Lazarus was raised by Christ as a sign, but he then died. Whereas obviously when Jesus rose to life, he didn't then die. And those who were raised with him in that moment were some kind of first fruit of the new kingdom. They would have received resurrection bodies and ascended with him as something of this new kingdom breaking in. I can't say that definitively means that, but that's what some people seem to, to be suggesting. And it, it feels like that's, that's just a new, fresh breeze on that, that story that means so much to us. The coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 these witnesses raised to life, this breaking in. And this community, these people here tonight are part of God's new creation. We are part of God's new creation. His one new humanity, as uh, Paul calls it. Now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. You know, one of, the, one of the big apps of the last few years has been this app, Calm. I don't know if you've got it or you've come across it, but it's really aimed at helping people find peace. And it's breathing exercises and it's background music and it's alpha beats and all these crazy sorts of things I don't fully understand. But it's massive. And my Fit, this isn't my Fitbit, but my Fitbit has this little program on it to help me breathe. You know? Follow, follow the icon on the thing and you breathe. You know, my Fitbit is not my peace. God is my peace. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. I'm not saying, suggesting there's anything wrong with any of that, except we know that that isn't true peace. That isn't ultimate peace. God is our peace. God is our peace. You might be here tonight thinking that you've fallen out with a brother or sister here, that there's some conflict. Is there any hope that you can be reconciled? Yes, because God is our hope. God is the reason we can be reconciled to one another. He himself is our peace who made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by establishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. We are one new humanity. We will get to the sermon in a minute. I just want to remind us who we are. Encourage you that it's important that you are here. It really is important that you're here. As a family, we've been watching Bear Grylls, The Island. Okay, I know it's a bit, a bit 2019. But that's where we're at as a family. And on the island, various people get stranded and they have to try and survive for 30 days with one day's supply of water and a couple of machetes. And uh, 
in this particular cohort on the island of 12 are two builders. But these two builders hate each other. I mean, instantly they were on the island, they were fighting. And, and we're, we're just kind of like 48 hours into this, and they're absolutely at each other's throats. And basically, both of them leave. Because you can just, you know, phone up the boats and they come and pick you up, and then it's all over. You can go and have a beer in the bar. The rest of the islanders are imploring them. We need shelter. We need fire. We need beds. If you guys leave, you weaken us. And I was thinking how like church that is. We need each other. You know, I am not an accountant. Here's accountants, and there's me over there on the horizon. In fact, on the other side of the world. We need each other. We need each other. We need each other's gifts. We need each other's contributions. And this is all relevant for this passage that we're going to look at today. Because I don't want City Church to remain the same. Paul is always urging them to grow up, to put off the old, to lay hold of the new, to press into, to take hold of isn't he? To think about. And I want us to be the most welcoming church the world has ever seen. One church on earth has to be the most welcoming church that history has ever seen. Why not us? Why don't we outdo one another in hospitality, even though it's costly, friendly, united, I long for us to be more and more and more united. One of the things that Paul was facing in Corinth was factions. I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Jesus. I follow the Gospel Coalition, I follow Bethel, I follow Freedom in Christ, I follow Alpha. It's, it's so easy for an enthusiasm to tip into a faction. I want us to be quick to worship. I love David. King David saying to himself, wake up my soul. I don't need a worship leader to slap me about and get me on my feet and tell me to raise the roof. You know, my heart responds to God. I want us to be like that. I want us to be soft. I want us to be excited about the grace of God on our lives, about our sovereign God who is king of all creation. I want us to be front-footed with our gifts, celebrating the grace of God. In my small group, we were looking at, at Luke 15. You know, if, if, if Romans 8 is, is Everest, then Luke 15 has got to be at least K2 or something like that. Luke 15 is the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. In each situation, it ends with celebration. The coin is found, and so they celebrated. The sheep is found, and so they celebrated. The sun is found, and so they celebrate. We should be quick to celebrate. We should be celebrating in our hearts constantly. Trustworthy, generous, mature, confident in God. I found so often the people that present, and you tell me, if you, you know, if you found this to be true, the people that present as, as arrogant, overbearing, often that's, there's an insecurity underlying that. 
they're blowing their own trumpet. They're making their own case. They're kicking down their own doors. And I find that actually with real strength and security comes humility. If we are confident in who God has made us and what he's done for us, that breeds humility. We know it's a gift from him. Convinced and assured of our salvation. That's the church we want to become. And so let's turn to this passage in which Paul is facing a number of difficulties. So... I don't want to go into loads and loads of details. We did a whole series on Corinthians, and you might remember some of that. It's helpful to have just enough information to sort of navigate where you're at. So when Paul wrote Romans, Romans is also a letter. Corinthians is a letter. Therefore, you might read them the same way, but they're not the same. Paul had never been to Rome. He's writing to Rome his magnus opus. This is what I believe. And the relationship isn't really there yet. If Romans is a documentary, a presentation, then Corinthians is a bit more like EastEnders. Corinthians is episodic. Corinthians is deeply drenched in relationship and conflict. So Paul had been to Corinth. We know that in Acts. And although we've got two letters, there are other letters hinted at. So even in 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about things he wrote and things they wrote. So there must be two letters before 1 Corinthians, probably one between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And we're listening to half of that conversation. Does that make sense? And so that's important because sometimes Paul says, now concerning this, and then he goes into a sentence. And actually that sentence is probably a quote from their letter. So it's not that so much that he's saying this, he's just saying that they're saying this. <laughs> and so you kind of have to have your wits about you a little bit. It's a huge city, Corinth, one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire. A brand new city because it had been destroyed and then they realized its significance strategically and they rebuilt it. So imagine Dubai or Las Vegas or Milton Keynes, you know, some, someone, something that wasn't there a few years ago and now has risen up. And therefore it's attracted people from all over the empire who want to make something of themselves. There isn't an old aristocracy in that place. This is a kind of gold rush type of place. And, um, it, it, you know, it's in that little land bridge between the north of Greece and the south of Greece. So there's just trade coming to and fro, multicultural. People are competing with one another, perhaps, coming from all different corners of the globe. And uh, this isn't really a very technical term, but I did find it in a commentary. What Paul finds in Corinth is a dumpster fire. Okay, it's a bit of a hot mess what he finds in Corinth. And uh, he's trying to address things. So he, he comes sort of through 1 Corinthians as if he's going through a list of things. And I've highlighted that in pink. So he sort of says, now concerning the betrothed, or later on, now concerning food offered to idols, or now concerning spiritual gifts. He's kind of going through things, I think, that must have been raised during this conversation between the two parties. And what Paul says about spiritual gifts is not mystical and untethered. It's incredibly practical. 
And he's right from the beginning saying, I do not want you to be uninformed. His, his desire is to, for us to engage our minds in what he's trying to say. It's not be spiritual or be intellectual. Be spiritual by being intellectual, at least in part. I don't want you to be uninformed. And, um, you know, I've been reading these three chapters because they sort of come as a package, 12, 13, and 14, and um, drawn on some of the verses that aren't in this chapter. But Paul really wants us to engage our minds, to earnestly desire the gifts. He says, I used to think like a child, but now I put away childish things. This is in the context of spiritual gifts. To grow up. When I became a man, I gave away childish ways. Pursue love. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Do not be like children, but in your thinking, be mature. This is all in the context of spiritual gifts and the gathered church. So Paul is really keen for us to think about spiritual gifts thoroughly. And, you know, if I could put up the umbrella of protection, um, I think sometimes we can get a little bit unstuck here. I don't know if it's a stronghold in Cambridge, if it's a stronghold in the West, if it's a stronghold in this moment in time. But I think I've sometimes heard people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm very clever, I've got a very big brain, I've got lots of letters after my name, and it might be okay for you to do that sort of stuff, but I'm a thinker, and actually I'm not persuaded, and get stuck there. It's okay, it's essential to think about these things, but it's not okay to be stuck there for 20 years, not moving forwards or backwards. If that's you, I would love to try and help you, talk you through it, sit with you, pray with you. I don't want anyone to be stuck, but I also don't want someone to falsely pit intellect against the work of the Spirit, who surely is the most intellectual in all creation, matchless. He wants us to understand, but he also wants us to take action. So, Poppy, if you could put up the one slide I've got. This, this, this verse really is the money in terms of this sermon. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If we can understand this and enact it, our lives and our life as a church would be transformed. To each is given... So that's a kind of a passive receiving of, of a grace. But manifestation is active, to make evident or to make certain by showing or displaying. So we receive a gift, but we respond to it and we enact it for the common good. Those two builders, deciding they couldn't get on, both leaving the island, has a massive impact on the community that they should still be part of. They are needed. 
God's given them a gift for a reason. And the gifts are active in their expression. So Anna and I sometimes, you know, Anna will, we sit at the breakfast table reading our Bibles, kick ideas around sometimes. And so one that particularly sticks in my mind was when we were talking about gifts of the Spirit. And she said, maybe we shouldn't talk about gifts, we should talk about tools. And obviously it does say gifts, so we're not going to change the Bible. Um, but that talks about the grace of receiving something. But that gift is a tool. The gift is, is how you received it, so don't boast. But unlike an ornament or a trinket that you keep for your own pleasure, this gift is to be put to use for the benefit of the community. Gifts like, and you tell me if these are passive or active, speaking, believing. You know, when you read faith, think about that missionary trying to translate the word faith into that language and coming up with a word that means to put all of your weight on a chair, to trust a chair completely with your complete weight. That is a very active thing. Speaking, believing, praying. Working miracles, discerning between spirits, interpreting tongues. These are all very active things that God gives us to do. Or later on, after the end of this chapter, it talks about apostles, prophets, teachers. No one could possibly claim that teaching is a passive thing, that it just happens by osmosis. It, it does happen by osmosis, but we need to enact it. Miracles. Administration. Wow. You know, we've had James Douglas coming in and helping us uh, as an eldership team. And his ability to think in straight lines and to just put one thing in front of the other on behalf of the team has unlocked a whole bunch of pastor teachers who all find themselves on top of each other until an administrative gift comes and says, well, here's how we could work better. Wow, what a revelation. Not to him. To him it's obvious because it's a gift. But it's a gift he's taken time to help us with. Uh, healing. Helping. These are spiritual gifts mentioned in these chapters. And why does God give us these gifts? For the common good. Okay, Paul wants us to understand that we're to build up God's church. Not to build up your ministry, not to build up your likes and subscribes, not to build up your following. Not hit and run ministry, but sticking with it ministry. Loving God's people as he loves the people. I think of Jesus pleading with Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. For they're building up an encouragement and consolation. That's in the yellow. When you practice these gifts, you build up the church, so the church may be built up, strive to excel in building up the church. Use your gift, and when your gift isn't being used, we suffer. You know, the grace of God is sufficient, but his plan A is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known as we play our parts. 
And there's massive diversity in this because he says to one is given this, to another given that. So he puts it in the positive. To, to one is given the gift of prophecy, to another the gift of working miracles. And then he puts it in the negative. Do all prophesy. Do all speak in tongues. And obviously the implication from that rhetoric is no. Not all prophesy. Not all are apostles. Therefore we need each other. I was with a church in, in Switzerland this summer and they, they'd kind of reached out to, to us to get some help and we were spending an evening with their leaders it was just very obvious to me that there was no kind of apostolic input into this church. There was no bigger picture. There was no one coming in amongst them, stirring them up and releasing things amongst them. They'd kind of got completely introverted and, and introspective and were kind of diminishing because the, the light wasn't shining. And, and you can't pretend that there's an apostle there if there isn't. Or, you know, this church needs better teaching. This church needs some, some just pastoring. You know, these situations where those, if those gifts aren't present, there's malnourishment. There's a lack. I, I'm persuaded that God has given us in this church all the gifts that we need. We need to enact them. I'm not a foot or a hand. And maybe you are. Maybe... We need to experience that mutual respect, appreciation, understanding of our need. And it's helpful also just to stop comparing ourselves with each other. You know, Nicky Gumbel can do X, Y, and Z, and people get saved. And I think if, if I do X, Y, and Z, then people get saved as well, so then I do it, and they don't. I don't have that gift. Or... You know, I'm always amazed at those of you who have got such a pastoral heart where I say to you, now, have you heard that there might be a problem with this? Oh, yes, I've been dealing with that for 18 months. What? 18 months? I've only just noticed. But your antenna are different, and you've been deeply embedded in that situation for a long time because you've got a gift. So let's just finish with a challenge or commission. This is from Galatians 6. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. Oh, brothers and sisters, there have been two situations this week where I have been so embattled and um, hard-pressed, Paul would say, not that I'm claiming to have been shipwrecked or anything. And in each situation... The pressure point has just been, will this person continue to do good in the face of all the opposition they're experiencing? Being taken for granted, being misunderstood, being willfully opposed, even though they're just trying to help and they are helping, can they keep going? Or are they going to get weary in doing good and not reap the harvest? Please, let us not grow weary of doing good. We don't do it for the accolades, for the appreciation, do we? We do it because when we were dead, Christ came and made us alive. When we were enemies, he came and became our friends. When we were hostile, he was hospitable.
Do not grow weary in doing good, for in the due season you will reap if you do not give up. So then, as you have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those of us who are of the household of God. So let me finish with this thought. Do you come to church, by which I mean the meeting, do you come to the meeting at your most passive Because, wow, Daniel, I've been in industry all week. I've been with my kids all week. I've been doing the stuff all week. I'm absolutely exhausted. And I'm here to sit back and receive your ministry or whoever's up here. I know sometimes I can feel like that. I can feel like I'm not on. I'm not on today. I'm going to put the suntan lotion on and put my shades on and, you know, get a cocktail and sit with the sun. No. Let's not do that. You don't either rest or minister. Rest is a person. His name is Jesus. We come to Jesus. And actually, in that resting and recuperation, we're doing it for one another. So I would echo Paul's words, if that's not too bold. So then, City Church, as we have opposition, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of God. Don't go into especially laid-back passive mode when we gather. Go into I'm coming to the household of God to minister to them. Another word for ministry is serving. Another word for ministry is caring. Let's care for one another. Let's minister to one another. Let's not grow weary in doing good. I've wanted to stir us and to exhort us. I've not wanted to discourage anyone or tell anyone off. I hope I haven't done that. That's not my heart. I love this church and I know that God's put gifts in us that I want to continue to see growing and they have been growing. Hopefully just telling you about the ID students this week will remind you of just how generous and hospitable this church can be, which is different from hostility. I need to make sure I don't confuse those words. So Phil, if you could come and um, lead us in worship. We're going to take communion, which we do every week. Sometimes we do it all together. But um, what I suggest we do is Phil leads us in worship. And during the first two or three songs, each of us makes our way forward takes some bread and wine, has communion under the cover of those songs as we lift our eyes to God. I think it's, um, despite my name being Goodman, I don't think there's any Jewish blood in my family. Um, But I'm told that the Jewish culture is so collectivist that... Even with Jews today, there would be a sense in which they feel they were brought out of slavery from Egypt. They were in the loins of their forefathers, and they experienced that as part of their story. And Jesus was doing that with his disciples. He was celebrating Passover, celebrating that moment of coming out of, of Egypt, the lamb that was the blood of the lamb that was poured out for them. And it's in that context that Jesus said, you're not in that lamb, you're in this lamb. I am the bread that was broken for you. I am 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We are hidden with Christ in God. I love communion because it's visual, it's tactile, it's communal. So let's lift our eyes to Jesus. Let's worship him. Let's stir up ourselves and one another and let's come forward and take communion in the next few songs. Thank you, Phil.